Welcome to Club Core, an interdisciplinary podcast exploring science stories. I'm your host, Dr. Angel Core, an assistant professor of neuroscience at UNC Asheville. Each episode of this podcast is created by undergraduate students enrolled in one of my courses. So join us as we delve into a variety of topics with one simple goal, to get it less wrong. Hi guys, I'm Lizzie Minta and I'm a mass communication slash psychology major. My pronouns are they, them. I'm here with my roommate and my close friend, Danny Secor. Yeah, hey guys, um, I am Danny Secor. I'm a mass communication major uh, at UNC Asheville. I use he, him pronouns, and I personally am pretty excited to learn about whatever it is I'm about to learn about. So for my neuroscience and film class uh, here at UNCA, we had to analyze a movie of our choice using the neuroscience and film composition skills we've accumulated throughout the semester. Today, I want to talk to you about the film Brain on Fire. Have you ever heard of it? I have not. Uh, What's it about? Basically, Brain on Fire, directed by Gerard Barrett, is a 2016 film adaptation of the book Brain on Fire, My Month of Madness. This book, released in 2012, is a New York Times bestselling autobiography of Susanna Cahalan. Essentially, she rapidly developed an incredibly rare receptor disease in her brain called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, and she accounts her misdiagnosis and the process of testing and recovery. Jeez. Yeah, that sounds crazy. Yeah, honestly. Uh, the film itself aligns pretty similarly with Cahalan's autobiography. So the main character, Susanna, pretty surprising name I know, begins as a seemingly normal 21-year-old writer from the New York Post. Uh, we follow her descent into instability. She begins experiencing flu-like symptoms and then slowly manifests into a schizophrenic-like disorder. She has seizures and gets misdiagnosed with working too hard, and then finally schizophrenia before being properly diagnosed by Dr. Suhel Najjar. Huh. Okay. So, like, straight up gaslighting her? Yeah. Yeah, literally. Literally. Anyways, uh, in my opinion, I think Gerard Barrett uses Brain on Fire to dramatize the danger of the U.S.'s current shortcomings in mental health treatment. You can see this specifically through, like, his portrayal of psychosis and schizophrenic-related symptoms, the mise-en-scene, and Susanna's interpersonal relationships throughout the film. Okay, so the film shows, like, the outcome and, like, what can go wrong if you don't have, like, conscientious diagnostic capabilities. Like, okay, so, like, physicians need to look beyond the surface to find a true diagnosis and not just, like... Yep. Yep, that's exactly what it is. Um, So let me explain a little bit more about uh, what this uh, disease is in general. So in medical terms, anti-autoimmune response, receptor against NMDA receptors in the brain, encephalitis causing swelling and disruption in signaling. NMDA receptors are proteins that control electrical impulses in the brain. Their functions are uh, critical for judgment, perception of reality, human interaction, memory, and autonomic body functions, kind of like, like breathing and swallowing. Mm-hmm. This disease creates antibodies against NMDA receptors. So antibodies are an important part of our body's defense system. They're like our first our first line. Mm-hmm. And everybody creates them to fight off like viruses, bacteria, or tumors. However, in anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, that's kind of a mouthful. <laughs> Those antibodies confuse the brain, causing it to attack its own tissues. Okay, so that's like kind of really scary, right? Mm-hmm, honestly. So like then what happened? What are the initial symptoms? Right. Um, so onset symptoms usually start out as memory deficits, 
sleeping problems, flu-like symptoms, and then it progresses rapidly, showing symptoms such as confused thinking and hallucinations, seizures, catatonia, and uh, the dysfunction of those autonomic responses like heartbeat and uh -huh. slow breathing, stuff uh -huh. like that. It's super difficult to diagnose at first because of those beginning symptoms. A lot of times it presents itself as more of like a psychological problem rather than a neurological one. Okay, so is this like the kind of movie that like, are people out there talking about how much like this movie has helped them? I think for this film and like in watching interviews with director Barrett mm -hmm. and with uh, the real Susanna, it seems like they really try to spread awareness. Like that seems mm -hmm. to be like the main goal okay, that okay. at least that they're saying. Because you know, like there are those movies that like, like we were talking about Split. Yep. How it's like, okay, like you could have done a lot with that and you didn't really touch on certain things. I, and I personally had no idea what this disease was before watching the film. So yeah. I think in that case, it's definitely at least helped me be aware of uh -huh. it. Okay. The Real Life Susanna was actually the 217th, 217th person to be diagnosed with this. Yes, in okay. the world. Okay, okay. Since it was found like two years prior to Got that. Got you. How do they portray how new it is, like, with the symptoms and stuff like that? Barrett definitely does so very subtly at first. Uh -huh. um, that actually brings me to my first point. Uh, I want to start with the first scene that I want to analyze with you. I think the mise-en-scene and her own, like, verbal description of the symptoms uh -huh. will kind of, like, show you an example of that. Uh -huh. But basically, here's a clip from the first time uh, Susanna goes to the doctor, and she's already showing those first mild symptoms of this disease. See, like, if you listen closely, you can hear sirens, you can hear a phone ringing, and you can even hear, like, ambient noise of what I'd assume is air conditioning. So, Gerard Barrett is using the soundscape in this specific scene to cause the audience to feel tired and foggy in the same way Susanna feels right now. We hear those sounds, we usually tune out, like, the air conditioning and stuff. Right. But they aren't loud enough for us to truly pay attention to them. Her makeup in the scene accentuates her dark circles and under-eye bags, also alluding to how tired she is. Mm -hmm. The shots cut back and forth between the doctor and Susanna while she's talking. This like quick sort of parallel editing of the two shows that the doctor is presumably actively listening to what she has to say, while also keeping up a fast pace, which increases our anticipation mm -hmm. of what might be wrong. First off, um, the doctor doesn't dismiss her claims of bedbugs, even though we as the audience saw the bites earlier in the film, but we see now through this framing that they're not there anymore. The reason behind that is to make us see Susanna as delusional. So what's interesting to me is the doctor's like subtle framing and costuming. He's sitting in this sort of submissive position towards Susanna, mm -hmm. looking like slightly up at her. Barrett wants the audience to think the doctor cares to listen to her problems. And also the stethoscope, his crisp shirt, glasses, and salt and pepper hair color, they reveal his age, giving some agency into his trustworthiness, wisdom, and experience in the field. But my point in analyzing this film specifically, because just the spoiler, like, he's wrong. He doesn't end up, like, giving her the right diagnosis. Right. Barrett, in this moment, wants us to trust the doctor. He wants us to understand how hard it is to look past that innate bias we have as humans. That someone who is in a profession higher up than us, like a doctor or a lawyer, knows everything that we don't. Like, the idea that they have all the answers and that we should pay attention without criticizing their judgment. Dang, yeah, I didn't even think about that point. I feel like that's definitely, like, a common thing, especially around mental health. 
Based off of Dr. Catherine Molly, there's a huge level of discrimination in mental health professionals for people who basically aren't cis white men, specifically. Uh, as far as, like, anti-NMDA goes, there's about 11,700 cases worldwide diagnosed so far. It was discovered in 2007, and the real Susanna mm-hmm. was diagnosed in 2009. Here's the interesting thing, though. Uh, women for this disease are four times more likely to contract it than men. Four times more likely. That leads me to my second scene that I want to analyze with you. So this is the second time Susanna goes to this doctor to try to get a diagnosis. Same guy. And this is, yep, and this is after having a seizure. Okay. Immediately we can see like a stark contrast between both the tonality of the doctor and the mise-en-scene in comparison to that last clip. We still have those car noises, and there's an audible chatter, those sirens, and the same humming as before, but they're more obvious now. The room looks a lot more static than before. The fluorescent lights make the white walls, like, behind Susanna look super, like, dingy and sickly and unwelcoming, giving the scene, like, a more serious tone than before. Mm -hmm. I think the lighting change is purposeful, though. The doctor seems to be colder, and his tonality seems a lot more, like, straight to the point and apathetic than before. Yeah. It's kind of interesting because, like, I feel like if I didn't know the plot, I don't think I'd know who to trust just because I don't know, like, the characters and, like, what's really happening. Do you know what I mean? Right, like, right. Uh, from the first conversation, like, first off, that short of a conversation with Susanna and the doctor gives an audience a sense that the doctor may not be taking her case seriously anymore. He's dismissive, he draws antagonistic and misguided prognosis at that, but... Whenever it cuts to the mom, it, like, starts out with this clip showing her hands folded together and she's fidgety. So she looks like this frail little deer, you know? But as we move up and we hear his, like, ridiculous explanation, we can tell there's a sense of her not fully listening to him. Specifically, it's usually whenever the lighting looks like this, the dark and the light have, like, a harsh cut in the middle. It portrays, like, this sort of, like, deception and and lie, withholding a secret, sort of. And the fact that she even looks away, too, in this one clip. It's like, she doesn't trust him. Yeah, she she knows knows something's up. Exactly. She knows her daughter. It seems to me like Barrett wanted us to be sort of like a third person, fly Mm. on the wall type Mm -hmm. situation. But, like, what I think is interesting, in a, in an interview with the Red Carpet News TV, Barrett says, like, a pill doesn't solve everything. Sometimes you need a doctor who believes in you and is willing to fight for you. Yeah. And I think the uncertainty of, like, who to trust really portrays Barrett's, like, overarching theme and purpose for producing Brain on Fire. In my research, this is interesting, I found that individuals diagnosed with schizophrenia, which she was at one point, are sometimes believed to be less capable of making decisions about their treatment Mm. than individuals diagnosed with other types of mental illnesses. Okay, gotcha. Wait, do they, like, show that in the movie? Yeah, actually. So later on, in between this scene and the last scene I'm going to show you, when she's admitted into the hospital, the team of doctors assigned to her case, they Uh. basically diagnosed with schizophrenia. The parents were like, no, that's not it. And they were like, you know what, like, give it three days. And if she's still not making any progress, we're going to send her to a psychiatric hospital. Mm. Which is interesting because, like, one report found that mental health professionals were even more likely than the general public to support involuntary treatment. That's so, like, unsettling. Right? Yeah. And I just, I keep having to remind myself that, like, this is actually based off of someone's real life. Right? Like, there are 11,000 people who have basically gone through the same thing. I have a description, actually, from, like, it was an article that the Real Life Susanna was, her life was talked about in the Washington Post, and basically they described her in the hospital as, like, this mute, motionless person, like, in this, like, motionless state of catatonia. 
Wait, what was the word that you just said? Uh, catatonia. It's like, like, I don't know if you've ever heard of, like, catatonic state. It's like, basically, uh, it's a medical term to describe someone essentially like a zombie-like state. Like in Susanna's case, for example. She was almost completely immobile. And it's been proposed, actually, that this sort of state results from dysregulation in glutamate, GABA, and dopamine pathways of your brain, which is also associated with schizophrenia and Mm. with anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, which I'll, like, talk about. the dots. Yeah, exactly. To those who don't know, like, glutamate is the most common excitatory neurotransmitter that it's necessary for, like, normal brain function, learning, and memory. GABA, the other uh, pathway it affects, is made from glutamate. It works as the major inhibitory neurotransmitter in the brain. Both, like, GABA and glutamate work together to keep the brain balanced. Like, low glutamate would lead to something like insomnia, psychosis, and even death. Like, high glutamate levels leads to headaches, anxiety, irritability, and even, like, the death of brain cells. Like, it's hard to recognize that this is still yeah. such a real-life yeah, disease. Yeah. I can only imagine, like, seeing your loved one slowly descend into, like, someone completely unrecognizable. Barrett, I believe, uses those dynamics, you know, like, the progression of those relationships. He applies that to Susanna's interpersonal relationships really well, and he does that to show the real-life effects and dangers of lacking adequate and thorough evaluations in the mental health community. Okay, so it kind of, like, if I could compare it to anything, it kind of reminds me when you have an older relative, like a like a grandparent who is going through, like, dementia or yeah. something like that. You know what's interesting is... What's, um... what's interesting? <laughs> uh, the... Part of the brain with, like, glutamate, GABA, is actually associated with Alzheimer's as well. Mm. Like, uh, here's the last scene I want to analyze with you. Uh, so to catch you up, Susanna's stuck in that, you know, catatonic state, right. as I mentioned before. Mm-hmm. Basically, a professor had come out of retirement to look at Susanna's case, and he performed the clock test on her. And that's basically where a patient will, like, draw a circle and draw 1 through 12, like, the clock numbers. Mm-hmm. Both real life and in the movie, she ended up drawing 1 through 12 on only the right side of the clock. That showed the doctor that she had a problem with one of the hemispheres of her brain. And that's how he ended up diagnosing her. So basically the scene is right when he comes in and tells the family. For the mom, there's a shallow depth of field, so we focus on her face and her hands rather than the background itself. Mm -hmm. The main focus here, though, is in the eyes. Like, she looks like, like, this, the lighting, the ambiance, she's Mm -hmm. reading, she looks like, from someone else's perspective, she would look relaxed. Yeah. But in this case, once we direct our focus to her eyes, we realize how low they are. Like, it really shows how long she's been waiting for her daughter to feel better, how long she's been waiting in the hospital in general. Yeah, she's exhausted. Exactly. So in this close-up of the dad, he's obviously looking down and angled. He looks very defeated. It's being shot into the shadow side of the face, giving the effect of, like, heaviness. He looks exhausted, depleted. He looks sad. His brows are furrowed, but uh, just, like, a really somber look to his face. And then this is her boyfriend, Steven. Okay. Steven also looks exhausted. Yeah. His body language is, like, slumped over and submissive and vulnerable at that. It really shows how Susanna's deterioration and lack of answers in the hospital has affected his well-being specifically. There's a slight shallow depth of field Mm -hmm. um, revealing to us the location just enough to remind us that we're in a hospital. It reveals to us the location, the boring, hopelessness, mundane feeling of waiting in a hospital while also keeping our focus on the Stephen and the hospital room itself. Yeah, they all just look like beat 
Like, even without the knowledge of the rest of the hospital stay prior to this, I think Barrett does a great job at portraying that hopelessness and thus revealing the importance of thorough mental health care. Mm-hmm. Notice the contrast between the previous doctor yeah. and Dr. Najjar. Yeah, I like, like that guy a lot better. <laughs> he's very warm, he's very charming, and he gives us a sense of like comfort amidst yeah. this buildup of chaos and anxiety. Yeah. In these insert shots of Susanna, I mean, she like looks like she has a bit of life. The angle of the camera makes it look like she's looking at the doctor uh-huh. when he's speaking. And also, those insert shots remind us that Susanna is a victim, basically. She's been, like, dehumanized by those symptoms and by the doctors that she's seen who are supposed to protect her, you know? And we feel that through this scene, obviously we're getting the answers, but through the insert shots alone, we feel that she'll finally receive the care that she needs. That's so sweet. (laughs) Finally. (laughs) The fact that he's crying, the fact that he feels, like, so relieved himself, and he's been on this case maybe a couple days. Yeah. That like, says a lot. Mm-hmm. It really says a lot. I think Gerard Barrett is showing the audience here that there is someone who can help. Like, it's mm-hmm. a matter of finding the right one. But the fact that it took this long and required a medical student to bring a professor out of retirement to find her true diagnosis is the problem. All of these doctors, all of the thousands of dollars just spent with her and her family just, like, sitting and waiting. The inner turmoil of emotions yeah. her family and friends must have felt. Like, that should not have had to happen. Right. Like, this should have been recognized in the beginning. I think that's what Barrett's trying to say is that, like, doctors, medical professionals, and mental health professionals need to have the same attachment mm-hmm. to all of their patients as Dr. Najjar has to Susanna. Definitely. Yeah, and, like, you know, science is always changing and, like, no one can know everything. Exactly. I don't know, especially with something like this that's so rare, it's like... I think Brain on Fire is just one example of a successful blend of psychology in the film industry. Like, there are a couple of things that I can tell are just for film specifically, but it's pretty realistic. And I think it's up to us as the audience to decide whether Susanna's suffering was at fault of the diagnosticians uh-huh. or the medical system in general. I personally believe that it's the medical system, but it's further implemented by those diagnosed, yeah. you know. They kind of enable exactly each other. Exactly. And overall, Gerard Barrett has helped direct a movie that's like spread awareness to both a specific disease and also like a life or death sociological problem within this community. But yeah, like that's all that I really have to show you. Uh, I want to thank you so much for being in my podcast. You've been such a great guest. This is my uh, podcast debut. Yeah, yeah. This is my first podcast ever. So, oh my god, it's our first podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was really cool. I feel like I'm about to watch that movie this weekend. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It gets kind of really intense. Like. uh, Yeah, it seems like it. I had. I'm into that though. Yeah. Yeah. I also wanted to thank Dr. Kaur for giving me this opportunity and the skills needed to make such an in-depth analysis. I feel very proud. Club Court is produced by a multidisciplinary team of students at UNC Asheville, with sound engineering support by undergraduate Kat Sawyer. Jessica Fox, a UNCA graduate, wrote our theme music. Special thanks to the UNCA Video Production and Media Design Lab for their help with this project, and thank you for listening. You can find show notes, including episode credits and links to the research discussed in this episode at clubcore.com episodes. If you like this episode, please share, subscribe, and review. And if you have a question you'd like us to explore, drop us a line. You can find me, Angel Core, on all the socials at Club Core. We'd love to tell your science stories so we can all get it less wrong. Until next time. <laughs>